Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. July 19th was the anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, America's first women's rights convention held in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. On this episode, we'll explore what happened at the convention and how its constitutional legacy shaped America through the 19th Amendment, which turns 100 next year, and through landmark cases of gender equality. Joining us to discuss the constitutional legacy of Seneca Falls are two of America's leading scholars of women's legal history and gender law. Erica Bakiaki is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington and a research fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute. She was a visiting scholar at Harvard Law School, and she is the editor of two books, Women, Sex, and the Church, A Case for Catholic Teaching, and The Cost of Choice, Women Evaluate the Impact of Abortion. She's also a contributor to the blog Mirror of Justice. Erica, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeffrey. Tracy A. Thomas is John F. Sieberling, Chair of Constitutional Law and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at the University of Akron School of Law. She is the author of Elizabeth Caddy Stanton and the Feminist Foundations of Family Law and editor of West's annual volume, Women in the Law. She was also co-editor of Feminist Legal History, Essays on Women in the Law, and is co-editor of the Gender and the Law Prof blog. Tracy, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. This is such an important topic, and I think let's just begin with the Declaration of Sentiments issued at Seneca Falls on July 19th, 1848. Listeners, you can check it out at uh, the Constitution Center's blog. And what's remarkable is that it's based on the Declaration of Independence. It begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, and then has a list of grievances about the repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward women, including he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise, he has withheld from her rights which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men. He has made her, if married in the eyes of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right and property, even to the wages she earns, and it goes on. It's an absolutely fascinating document based on the Declaration. Erica, uh, pr please uh, help us begin by giving us some historical context. Where did this Declaration come from, and why is it based so uh, closely on the Declaration of Independence? Yeah, you know, um, I want to sort of speak to the legal, economic, and cultural context of this um, really remarkable document. But first, let's go all the way back to Abigail Adams. Um, and, you know, remember her, you know, she she was sort of a precursor in her letter to John Adams, obviously her husband, where she herself was the first to make this analogy between, um, you know, the common law status of, of married women in coverture and to the injustices of King George against the, uh, against the colonists. And I think it's, uh, it's important to remember sort of her legacy as, as being the one, you know, she talks that we, we sort of remember her saying, remember the ladies, but she really, you know, talked about sort of, you know, uh, the tyranny of, of men and that sort of thing. Um, and that, you know, if, if you don't remember the ladies, they will foment a rebellion, which of course they then came to do. Um, but I, but I think it's important. Just you know, so most, most of course, listening to this podcast, you know, remember uh, the law of coverture, which was you know appropriated by the founders as this kind of unquestioned common law backdrop um, to the national structure that they were 
you know, erecting in the Constitution. And so they looked at, they looked to Blackstone because that was really, you know, the only, <laughs> the, the main, the main guy they read on the law. And so I think it's important just at the beginning of this to quote that, that language of Blackstone, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband under whose wing protection and cover she performs everything. So, you know, woman lost her the property rights that she had as a femme soul, a single woman, um, when she entered marriage, her husband actually gained the full use of her that real property that she brought in, um, and then had the full rights to her personal property. And he then, of course, was you know in exchange bound to protect her by law. But you know what was allowed in coverture, um, including sort of disciplines and things like that, is um, abhorrent, obviously, to us today. Um, but I think it's also important to remember. Um, you know that he that he you know was understood in this kind of re- early understanding of the republican form of government to be the the political representat- representative of the family right and so there's one sort of head patriarch of the family and the woman is understood to be a member of the family without you know her own individual rights just as the children are members but the backdrop of all of this is the real, you know, agrarianism um, of of the time. And so remember that, you know, most Americans are subsisting on the land in these ho- in household production, and women are incredibly important as collaborative, you know, um, members of the family in the interdependence. I mean, they didn't really have time at the beginning there because they're all subsisting to really, you know, make issues of of you know. Um, their subordination in the family. So they had no rights or recognition of legal status, but they had this essential contribution, which, of course, Tocqueville recognizes as he talks about uh, in Dem- Democracy in America as, um, you know, women having this, uh, the superiority of women, of American women, are what's going to bring about um, the success of, of the American Republic if, in fact, it will come to be because of this idea that... Um, of Republican motherhood, which, you know, they understood as kind of their most important work, which was inculcating personal virtue. Because, again, in the Republican understanding, early Republican understanding, the central tenet was that the political freedom that was promised required personal virtue. And so this was the high mission that women understood. And um, I love this quote by historian Elizabeth Fox Genevieve. She says, you know, no longer were women viewed as breeders who produced male heirs for families. Women as mothers came to be viewed as guardians of individual character. And so, you know, the the historian Linda Gerber talks about how this this understanding of, of Republican motherhood among themselves really was this kind of seed that fomented into their work first, of course, inside the home through the household, you know, very productive household economy, but then into uh, their work outside the home, excuse me, outside the home and, you know, began to give give rise to their political sensibility, women's leadership in, in movements for, you know, abolition, of course, first and foremost, and then social purity, women's rights, and ultimately um, um, uh, women's suffrage. And I think all of that is is key because what happens right along the time of, of Seneca Falls is, you know, the move in industrialization. And um, that, you know, the, the importance of industrialization where, you know, women's pr- productive work in the home is being taken out of the home and basically being done by men, you know, is robbing her of some of that work and then also changing, you know, how her work is is viewed in the home. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Um, Tracy, Erica has told us about how women uh, had a deprivation uh, before Seneca Falls, both of their civil rights, uh, such as rights of property through the couverture laws where they were uh, considered uh, the agents of their husbands, 
and their political rights, where, where the husbands were the representatives of the family. Tell us more about that context. What sort of disabilities did women suffer under these couverture laws before 1848? And what in particular was the Declaration of Sentiments of 1848 designed to reform? Uh, well, the Declaration of Sentiments was really designed to attack everything. It was a very holistic, broad-based um, systemic attack on all of the social, religious, and legal aspects of coverture. So um, Stanton takes on, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the author of the Declaration of Sentiments, took on all of these social norms, but also how they were entrenched in the law. She herself had been trained in the law, read law, her husband, father, Brothers-in-law were all lawyers, so she was very familiar with how the law operated as a vehicle. And in the Declaration of Sentiments, and in a Declaration of Sentiments, that terminology itself was something that had been used in the abolition movement and in various conventions to declare the sentiments, the moral sentiments of the conveners. So she adopts the Declaration of Sentiments um, title, but she uses the Declaration of Independence as her model for articulating all of these wrongs to women done through coverture. And um, the Declaration of Independence, it, it was obviously in, in the public's mind, it was something, uh, you know, a, a public icon and people understood that kind of revolutionary spirit. And so the, the, that was her, um, more of her political statement was to try to use that norm. But the content of the Declaration of Sentiments really was quite wide sweeping. And it included um, the, the elective franchise, the vote. And that was actually probably its most controversial, not because of, of women voting was so controversial, because women had voted temporarily or for a period of time in colonial New Jersey, um, but because the rest of many of the Quaker women and the abolitionists who were at Seneca Falls did not believe in the political system. They found the political system corrupt, government corrupt, and so they were trying moral suasion to change the hearts and minds of the country as far as slavery. And so they didn't want to play into that public governance, but Stanton did because Stanton believed in the power of representation and the power to change the laws. So the Declaration of Sentiments takes on Every aspect of coverture, there are 18 specific demands in the law for the vote, for custody of children, for the right to divorce, the right to be freedom from domestic chastisement, which uh, punishment of your spouse or domestic violence, we would now say, um, guardianship of children, marital property. But also the third part that we often forget about the Declaration of Sentiments was the right to equality in the church. Um, women had sort of been labeled with this moral superiority, but it was actually an inferiority. They were not allowed to teach in the churches, speak in the churches. The pulpit talked about women's inferiority, back to stories of Eve. And certainly the Quaker religion, especially the Quakers at Seneca Falls, very much believed in every individual's inner light and right to equality. So the third part of, of the Declaration of Sentiments also talks about women having the right and duty to speak, the right to speak in the churches, the right to their full happiness, autonomy, sphere of action. Um, so a very broad-based itemization going against every limitation of women in society and law. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for calling uh, my attention to the third part of the declaration, which I'm just reading. And as you say, it's absolutely fascinating in emphasizing uh, he allows 
her in church as well as state, but a subordinate position, claiming apostolic authority for exclusion from the ministry. He has usurped the prerogative of Jehovah himself, claiming it as his right to assign for her a sphere of action when that belongs to her conscience and to her God. Erica, can you please tell us more about Elizabeth Cady Stanton's conception of uh, religious uh, equality with men and how it influenced her other views about women's equality more generally? I think I should let the expert on uh, on Stanton really take care of Stanton. But I, I would want to call attention to Lucretia Mott, the Quaker minister who also was involved in um, helping to draft, um, you know, how much he was involved, what was written by whom. Obviously, I think uh, we know that, um, you know, Mott was a friend um, of, of William Lloyd Garrison, so certainly was part of that Garrisonian wing of, of the abolitionist movement, you know, that, um, that Tracy spoke of, where she, you know, was much more interested in moral suasion and so really, um, took some issue with the idea that, of, of putting forward, um, uh, suffrage right away, um, but I think, you know, a, a key p- part of, of what I would say is the Mott influence is another part, um, you know, really attacking the double standard, the moral double standard, um, which ends up being, um, I think, a key part of of their response to many of the ills that that um, come about in, in what hopefully we can talk about in terms of, of voluntary motherhood. Um, but, you know, Lucretia Mott was, was uh, an avid reader of Mary Wollstonecraft's 1792, you know, treatise of vindicating the rights of women. And, um, and she, you know, was one who really was calling attention to that double standard, you know, talking about how women had been uh, held to this norm of, of chastity and no other virtue, and men weren't held to the norm of chastity. And so Lucretia Mott, um, you know, I suspect is the one, but who knows, maybe I suspect it was, you know, also Stanton as well, but there's this great line about the fault, you know, created a false public sentiment by giving a world of uh, a different moral code of, mor- sorry, a different code of morals for men and women, um, which by, by uh, which moral delinquencies, which excluded women from uh, society and not only tolerated, but deemed of a little account to man. So then when you look into the resolutions, you start to see, well, what is their response to that? And, um, and I think that that's, that's you know, sort of very interesting, is that they want to raise men. Their answer to the sexual double standard, the moral d- double standard, is not to sort of eradicate morals. It's to raise men, expect more from men. Um, uh, so the same amount of, this is in one of the resolutions, the same amount of virtue, delicacy, and refinement of behavior that is required of women be required of men, and the same transgressions be visited with equal severity, which, of course, to our our ears sounds, well, severe. <laughs> but I think, too, I mean, getting back to, to the, the religious part, Part. One of the beautiful parts of the resolution, uh, the resolutions, is the very beginning, um, where they call about this great precept of nature, right? And so, um, and, and it, you know, to our ears, there's this appeal to, to universal law, um, you know, by which we judge human laws, which is really strikingly similar to what we then hear later in the letter to Birmingham Jail, you know. Um, obviously by MLK. Um, And so here, I want to read this part. um, Whereas, and this is the first resolution, the great precept of nature is conceded that um, to be that man shall pursue his own true and substantial happiness. Then they quote Blackstone here, which is interesting. It is binding all over the globe in all countries and all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them as are valid derive all their force and their validity, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go on to talk about, well, what is equality, you know, between the two, um, between, um, between men and women. And they, they find it in the capacities, the, the, they say the identity uh, of the race and the capacities or capabilities 
um, and responsibilities. And so that's really interesting too, I think. They say equality of human rights results necessarily from this identity of capabilities and responsibilities. So rights are derived then from these shared responsibilities. You know, rights aren't sort of these free-floating, um, self-determined, um, you know, initiatives on our part, but they actually flow from our responsibilities. And I think then they say, so, you know, if, we, if men are going to be out there being responsible um, with their vote, in politics and responsible for the for the you know future of the country, then women too who have these equal responsibilities, equal moral responsibilities, which hey men you recognize in the home, you say that all the time. I mean that's what Republican motherhood is. Um, then we too should have this um, this sense later. You know it comes to be understood by more and more women um, that that suffrage would then be of course what how women could participate in in these um, with these moral responsibilities. I mean I think it took time, obviously, well, decades to get there. And, you know, bringing on um, kind of the more conservative wing with Francis Willard and the Women Christian Temperance Union, um, who understood, you know, the the suffrage as the home um, protection ballot, you know, where, and then Jane Addams too, who later, you know, later in the uh, uh, early 20th century, she talks about, you know, this is just an extension of the responsibilities that women have in the home, which is to protect, you know, children, families, um, et cetera, in the industrial conditions that were out there. Of course, women need the right to vote to be able to protect all those things. And so I think that, you know, that, that uh, part of, uh, of um, the resolutions is really, is really quite interesting too. Fascinating. Uh, you have mentioned uh, Stanton's endorsement of the idea of voluntary motherhood or Republican motherhood. She also at different times called it enlightened motherhood and said that it included the woman's uh, right to protect children and her family in the context of the home to the same degree as men. Uh, Tracy, tell us about Stanton's notion of voluntary motherhood or Republican motherhood. Uh, and did it or did it not mean that Stanton uh, was opposed to abortion. Well, actually, each of those kinds of motherhood are slightly different. So uh, Republican motherhood is what Eric has been describing, which was more of the um, Revolutionary War colonial aftermath period of women's contribution to the public as a citizen was in the home, in raising moral children and in the sort of domestic sphere. Stanton didn't really prescribe to that ideal. In fact, she thought that was one of the sticking points to women's equality. Um, voluntary motherhood was actually an idea that was much broader than Stanton, but it's certainly one she subscribed to. Voluntary motherhood was the critique of the unlimited um, marital sexual rights of husbands and men. And it was uh, the idea that motherhood was often involuntary for women because men, uh, once married, you were said to consent to the marriage and, and sexual activity at any point in time without the right to withdraw that. So, for instance, we had laws that didn't recognize marital rape. Uh, we, had domestic, we didn't have domestic violence laws. We didn't have the right to withdraw consent. So women were criticizing um, it, that, that constant pregnancy. So we had, it, we had women having 10, 12 children back to back when they were still ill. And so women from various reform movements, from religious reform movements and social reform movements, conservative women, progressive women, women really, one issue they very much agreed on was this voluntary motherhood challenge. Um, and this started really 
Sarah Grimke's writings in the 1830s, but Stanton quickly picked up on this and definitely endorsed it. Um, she took it to, I think, um, a different level. Um, her idea was the enlightened motherhood. Eventually, she gets to this idea of enlightened motherhood. Um, so, so for both. So first, on the voluntary motherhood, her idea is that women had the right to choose at any point in time when they were to be mothers. So that's the voluntary part. And that it was the woman's right as the one who carried the child and who cared for the child um, biologically and both caregiving-wise, that it was her decision. For Stanton, that meant the way you enforced that decision was through abstinence and through controlling um, sexual relations with um, your spouse, and then also through this double standard, through changing men's moral understanding so that it became a different relationship with your spouse. Um, and so she writes about a woman's right to uh, bodily autonomy, controlling your body, um, that it is the woman's right alone to make that decision, free from patriarchy, rather individual husband or society. And so she um, later, she gravitates to the notion of enlightened motherhood. And enlightened motherhood came out of her seeing so many women in these situations with multiple children, 12 children, back-to-back uh, -back pregnancies, both the mother and the children sick and poverty. Um, and this notion that quality, there, there was this social norm as we get into immigration and nativism in America that white Protestant women needed to reproduce more. And so it was sort of this quality of, you know, quantity of children. And so she sort of takes that on and says women need to think about healthy pregnancies and um, actualizing each child and sort of not so not having so many, but having ones that you intend and choice and then in raising those. So her enlightened motherhood, and this is also a period of eugenics, eugenics starting early, it becomes something much more dark. Um, and it, it was dark from the beginning, but it was this notion that maybe we can change our, our biological outcomes. So all of that together really emphasized Stanton's writings that women are the ones making the choice. Her avenues for how that choice was made changed. Um, beginning in 1870, obscenity laws uh, made or laws changed the ability to speak about reproductive rights and biological, although Stanton had a series of speeches she gave across the country on her tour, which she toured for a decade, where she would speak to women alone about um, health issues and informing women about their body and how they could control um, sexual intercourse. And but it so we didn't really talk about contraception like we do now. That comes a little bit later um, with you know Margaret Sanger. But we um, she she and and abortion laws start to be criminalizing abortion beginning in the 1870s as well. So her avenue for enforcing this was different than we kind of think of it in today's terms. Thank you for helping us understand the distinction between voluntary motherhood, choosing to be a mother through abstinence, uh, and enlightened motherhood, uh, raising healthy uh, children. Uh, Erica, you wrote a piece uh, called Feminism and Abortion, What Would Susan Say?, where you say uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony uh, believed that giving women the right to vote so women might have the power and the influence to do away with the ghastly practice of abortion. 
Uh, and then you quote Stanton, there must be a remedy for such a crying evil as this, but where shall it be found? At least where begin, if not in the complete enfranchisement and elevation of women? Tell us more about why you believe that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony would have opposed the right to choose. Yeah, I think it's it's um, great to look at Stanton, at Anthony, and then also at the Grimke sisters, um, Sarah Grimke, Grimke's article, uh, Marriage. I mean, we could also look at, um, you know, the the words of of the first um, woman to run for president as, as the nominee of the Equal Rights Party. Um, and that was the political party that backed the ERA at that time with, uh, she had as her running mate, the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And, and you look at all these um, women who, you know, as um, the, the historian of, of, of birth control and really abortion, Linda Gordon, um, writes and, you know, to echo what Tracy has said, is that this idea of voluntary motherhood, um, kind of the right to say no um, to husbands, you know, uh, um, was really sort of the underlying, you know, sort of that foundation, um, you know, of 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 every claim for women's rights, and they really understood it too, not only as the claim for rights, but also as something that would um, bring about uh, an understanding, sort of a, a collaborative understanding of marriage. So there's this, you know, not only a legal asymmetry at that time with coverture laws, but also the sexual asymmetry um, and 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 you know, caregiving asymmetries with regard. With regard to um, both, you know, who, who, you know, the two, the men and the woman have sex together, and it is women who end up pregnant, and then at that time, and still in our time, um, are often the ones who are, are, you know, caring for all these children. And again, as as Tracy pointed out, I mean, at that time, you know, the the threats um, to women's life, to women's health of pregnancy, um, you know, the the fact that women couldn't. Um, you know, access um, either education in many instances, certainly at the, you know, not at the same um, kind of education as men, but also occupations. If they did, you know, you know, get into any occupations, they were, they were paid little as, you know, one of the complaints there um, in the declaration. Um, and, and so they were forced often into marriage um, and into, um, into pro- prostitution in some cases. And so here, forced into marriage, right, um, you know, one of the reasons that the temperance movement became so large because, you know, women were finding, uh, wanting to complain about their drunken husbands. And so this temperance move- movement went along with voluntary motherhood, drunken husbands who were pushing themselves on women, what we would consider as marital rape today. Um, and so, you know, when uh, looking at um, these, this kind of holding these two things together is, you know, at that this time, um, you know, the states um, had laws, uh, you know, um, prescribing abortion in many cases all the way to um, to conception, um, except in cases where the life, the mother of the life, and sometimes health were in danger. Especially right around the time of the Fourteenth Amendment, we see these these laws across across the country, and not. Um, you know, and and so what what women were doing at that point was well, a couple of things. I, I mean, I love in Tracy's book where she points out, and you see this in in a lot of the anti-abortion, um, you know, uh, kind of the vitriolic anti-woman kind of uh, language that's used at that time about prostitution, about women who are you know um, being forced into abortion, all of that, and. Um, and what you see the women's rights advocates doing at that time is they're not pushing back against the restrictive laws themselves. I mean, they too are characterizing abortion and infanticide together as child murder or abortion as antinatal murder. I mean, you, again, you see this Victoria uh, Woodhull, the, this first nominee um, of the Equal Rights Party, you know, having, you know, 
talking about, you know, here's a you know, great quote where she talks about the rights of children that as individuals begin yet when they remain uh, the fetus. She says, many women would be shocked at the very thought of killing their children after birth, deliberately destroy them previously. If there's any difference in the actual crime, we should be glad to have those that practice the latter pointed out. The truth of the matter is that just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after fully developed form um, is attained for that self-same life that is taken. But she's also the same person who writes, when woman rises from sexual slavery to sexual freedom into the ownership and control of her sexual organs, and a man is obliged to respect this freedom. So there's this kind of, you know, holding these two things together, which, you know, we don't sort of see those two things together um, in terms of the sort of the way the abortion rights movement has um really taken over sort of all of um, feminist understanding. But if you think about owning and controlling one's sexual organs, so, or say controlling one's body, right? We might say today, it didn't extend to this idea of owning, controlling the fate of one's unborn child because that was another human being's body. And this ownership of another was actually exactly the erroneous error that they were trying to seek to root out in both coverture and in slavery. So, so there was no extension, you know, as Tracy and, and Linda Gordon both, you know, um, you know, see, you know, recognize in their own great work in, in the history of, um, of seeing some sort of um, right to abortion. By the very contrary, you know, it was seen that abortion was a wrong that was done um, to women. And so what did they do? They pushed back again, not on the restrictive laws, but on this vitriolic, you know, language. And they wanted to show the underlying causes that were forcing women into abortion. And so they were laying the, the you know, the blame at the feet of, well, lustful men. And so that's what voluntary motherhood was all about, was really asking men to control um, their sexual impulses, to practice sexual self-mastery for the good of you know, the relationship, et cetera. And of course, women's unequal status in society so that they could not be forced into, into marriage in order to, you know, basically take care of themselves or of course, prostitution. And so that's where those, the twofold solution is in voluntary motherhood. And then obviously in education, first and foremost, but then as the movement wore on into enfranchisement of women as well. Tracy, what does the 19th century history tell us about what Elizabeth Cady Stanton would have thought about Roe v. Wade. Uh, Rita Siegel uh, of Yale Law School has argued that the restrictions for abortion really arose in the mid-19th century because of doctors' efforts to close ranks to professional competition. And it was around 1859 that the American Medical Association secured a resolution condemning abortion as an unwarranted destruction of human life and really just before and then, as you said, after the passage of the 14th Amendment that uh, very restrictive abortion laws got on the books. Did Stanton and other uh, attendees at Seneca Falls comment on those laws and and what was their position? Well, I think, first of all, when we're looking at history, I think we have to be careful about focusing on historical fact versus and historical context and then what arguments we can derive from those points. So, um, and, and this is this is an area where that becomes really important. You know, when we're looking at historical fact, not many people know the historical facts about the abortion laws or the women's rights movement. We tend to lump all of these women together. <laughs> Did if 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 we say if Susan B. Anthony said something, we attribute that to Stanton, et cetera. Um, if and we've had recent incidents, right, in the press with two other very prominent uh, authors um, missing historical fact, misinterpreting, misunderstanding historical fact. I mean, and I think this is important for um, understanding, making questions about 
what did Stanton would have said about Roe? I mean, the question is, what did Stanton engage about during the, um, if anything, during the abortion debate during her time? And then can we take anything of value with that to for us today? I mean, the short answer is that she said almost nothing. She did not engage directly with the criminalization of abortion efforts. Um, as Erica alluded to, this was really, this specific debate was not, they didn't weigh in on it. What they weighed in on, again, as Erica said correctly, was, you know, the misogyny, that these attacks were that women are selfish, women are trying to be professional, women are killing children, um, and that that uh, women reacted to that. What Stanton did say, I mean, we have, and I have spent a decade looking at her paper, so I know what she said versus uh, many of the other women who we would need to rely on the scholars of their work for that. Um, but there were four different occasions where she said something that that referenced um, something that looks like abortion. She used the word abortion once. So all of these um, were where she definitely she acknowledged this as a problem stemming from women's lack of equality and lack of choice. Um, she responded in one writing, the one that you quoted earlier, to a New York uh, magazine, New York newspapers articulation of abortion as a crying evil. So that quote comes from someone else and she kind of excerpts that. And she kind of just skips over the the moral issue or the criminalization issue. And she just goes right to women's equality and women's franchisement. And what that meant for her is women need a voice in the law. If women have a voice in making the laws, we will see something very different. We will see... Um, we will see women understanding why women resort to abortion. We will see women advocated for women to be on juries. Women were excluded from juries because um, of the historical English coverture laws, um, but also they were considered too weak, inferior, uh, not intellectual, needed to be protected from what was in the court. So she said, we need women in the courtroom to understand justifications and mercy as to why someone um, might commit infanticide. What she talked about more was infanticide, which is the killing of a child after its birth. And certainly the much more um, horrific and much more sensational idea, but she weighed in on several, uh, including one big criminal trial, who, the Hester Vaughn trial, who an uh, 18-year-old English immigrant who was uh, sentenced to the death penalty for the supposed infanticide of her child. She was found in a tenement, German tenement house, uh, not speaking the language of anyone there with a uh, three-day-old infant dead next to her. Um, there was no autopsy or inquiry, which may have proven that it was a stillbirth or that um, whether the child was even born alive. But uh, Stanton took up her cause and wrote tremendous volumes for the newspapers and speeches about this. And so she was taking even the more uh, seemingly no justification for why you would kill a, a child who was born and said, but women may understand why. And so that was certainly very um, provocative. And she was using that as a point. I mean, she also defended Hester Vaughn by saying we she had incompetent counsel. We didn't have proof of, of any of the things you would need in a criminal trial. Um, but she took it as an occasion to say we need women making the laws. 
And so that is a that is an implicit reaction to men, the male legislatures and the male gynecologists making the laws against abortion. Um, it is true that again, just to put this in historical context, abortion had been a practice at common law um, up until um, these criminalization laws and. Uh, up until the time of quickening, about more month four or five, midwives used various uh, practices to r- restore menzies, so to start periods again, which you would stop because you were pregnant. So it was um, not a talked about, but it was a practice at common law in our history. The, the criminalization came out of the professionalism of the medical um, doctors from taking from the midwives to the gynecologist who were male and who excluded women from that profession. Um, it was also, though, um, a, a, you know, it was not only that. It was also the male profession sort of changing their idea of the moral reality and that, and that arguing that women did not have the moral authority and autonomy to make these decisions. So I think Stanton's writings um, support that she was, all of this, voluntary motherhood and her writings on infanticide, all go back to a women's right to make the choice, to make a choice in the laws, and that we need women's voice in creating those rules. Erica, Tracy has just argued that by insisting that women should have the right to vote, uh, they were objecting to the ability of male physicians uh, and gynecologists to uh, regulate uh, abortion you have written uh, a piece in the Quinnipiac Law Review, A Putative Right in Search of Constitutional Justifications, Understanding Planned Parenthood v. Casey's Equality Rationale and How It Undermines Women's Equality. Uh, and you've also uh, written about uh, embodied equality, debunking equality protection arguments for abortion rights. Uh, tell us about why you believe that the equality arguments for abortion rights, which are based on the claim that the Laws regulating abortion in the 19th century were based on stereotypical views of male doctors toward women are, are not persuasive and why you think that uh, the uh, equality rights perhaps point in another direction. Sure. So I think um, just as a precursor looking at, you know, what the common law was doing prior to, um, you know, the the greater scientific developments where, you know, there was started, there began to basically be an understanding, um, pretty radical um, new scientific understandings about embryology at the same time. Yes, men were keeping women um, out of out of the medical profession, um, but they were, you know, looking at those scientific developments and and wanting to basically update the common law. And so the common law had, um, you know, since the 13th century, they had prohibited abortion only after, as Tracy was saying, the point where a pregnancy could be detected. And so they referred to this as animation, you know, coming to life or quickening from Lord Coke's, you know, quick with child or Blackstone's as soon as the infant is able to stir in the wounds, the mother's womb, right? So we have all this. And I think that, you know, it mistakenly is interpreted and it was even done in, you know, the Roe case itself as the sort of affirmative allowance for abortion before quickening. But what it really is looking at is the evidentiary limitations, right? Due, due to the science of the time, um, due to the, you know, rather harsh penalties for homicide. And so you want to have good evidence. And how do you find that evidence when there's, you know, basically no ability to medically detect um, early abortion at that time? It's very ambiguous. And so it's, impo- you know, difficult to prove, impossible to prosecute. And so that's why you see so few prosecutions or um, and, and, the, and the laws sort of remaining like that until, you know, there's this, you know, these scientific developments. And so 
Um, that's why, and it's again why you start to see um, the the women's rights advocates, you know, talking about um, about this science themselves, um, understanding, um, you know, who it is who's, um, you know, in you know in in the womb. Um, but I, I think one of the interesting points that Tracy makes about, and I think that's it's right on, you know, that Stanton. Um, because of her legal education, because of seeing, you know, the political potential of women, um, that women should have a voice in the law. And, and this is the real irony, um, is that, you know, in backing, for women backing Roe today, is that that's exactly what Roe um, didn't allow, was women's voice in the law. So Roe is, you know, decided by, um, you know, men in black robes and um, basically took away all of those, um, the state, you know, laws, every, you know, one of them, all of the reform laws that had been um, compromises um, among um, women and men across the country. And we see this today, that there are women on both sides of this issue. So if we want women's voices in the law, um, it makes sense to allow those things to be debated basically um, by, you know, by state legislatures and and certainly by getting more women into state legislatures um, and obviously into Congress. Um, so I think that that voice um, you know, of of women is um, is really key. is is a, a place where you know Roe um, Roe took that away from from women and and men who would want to have a voice on these things. I think the other really important part of this is to really just put the idea of you know the nineteenth century idea of voluntary motherhood side by side with t- what today we hear from abortion advocates, this idea of forced motherhood, because they, you know, they seem kind of similar, right? And so, or as Betty Friedan put it, I mean, remember her, um, the first volume of The Feminine Mystique didn't mention abortion. Um, You know, the first, uh, um, you know, um, um, sorry, the first statement of the National Organization for Women, which she founded, didn't didn't include abortion. I mean, these were real... um, Statements about women um, being respected as persons and um, looking at the discrimination held um, against them, you know, especially in the workplace, um, and and wanting to understand um, that they, you know, could think and have professions and be mothers too if they so choose. Um, but if you put these things side by side, so you look when Friedan, you know, comes um, in 1967, she talks about the right to control the reproductive process and the right of chosen motherhood. And these are certainly echoing both Stanton and all of the voluntary motherhood um, proponents, you know, that it's the same principle right there. But the problem is, is that voluntary motherhood was achieved formally through sexual abstinence, right? And that's, it's manifesting the couple's shared respect for the reproductive potential of sex and the asymmetrical role of women's, you know, in that, in that, um, um, that experience. And so no longer did this right of chosen motherhood mean affirmatively choosing when to engage in the act that might make oneself one a mother, but now it meant affirmatively choosing whether to end the life of one's child. And so it really flips voluntary motherhood on its head. Um, and so this original principle is seeking to protect against this, what they call antinatal murder, right? They're saying, what are the causes of this? Lustful men, let's tell men no. And I think um, it's, you know, especially interesting if you look, and I really want to follow, I mean, I think Catherine McKinnon in the 1980s, Robin West has sort of re- recapitulated some of her her work and just, um, I'm going to quote um, West here. And I think this is exactly right. 
and it, and it brings us back to voluntary motherhood. She said, West says, the Roe approach shifts the focus away from addressing the social and sexual imbalances that result in unwanted pregnancies to the unwanted pregnancy itself. And so strongly suggests that the appropriate social and individual response to unwanted sex is to protect the decision to end the pregnancy. Now, I'm not saying Robin West is pro-life. She's obviously pro-choice. But I want to just point out that that, that focusing on the social and sexual imbalance is what the voluntary motherhood um, advocates were trying to do. And so it's really sort of ironic that right at the time when women are, um, you know, coming to hold positions of power, I mean, you know, into the 1970s, getting into the workplace, getting into, you know, you know, better education, et cetera, equal opportunities. So then they abandon the earlier insights about the threats of undisciplined male sex, right? And then, you know, I mean, I just want to mention sort of me too, that we still have these powerful men who are, you know, asserting themselves onto women. And so had we instead been doing what McKinnon and West call us to, what the voluntary motherhood advocates call us to, which is looking at those social and sexual imbalances, I think we could really understand better um, you know, women's distinctive needs, desires, satisfaction. I mean, we look at the casual sex movement or casual sex culture, sorry, that so many women are starting to bemoan. Um, you know, it's a masculinization of sexuality where intercourse is kind of the end all and be all. And um, I think all of these things need to be put into question. We need to look at, at um, you know, the, the increase in sexual risk taking that comes about with, with easier access to abortion, obviously, which has been curtailed in some states now pending pending, you know, constitutional review. But, um, you know, these are the really interesting questions that I think looking back at this history um, gets us to grapple with and should get us to grapple with that I think, you know, um, haven't been. And, and I actually have a book that um, is almost complete, um, which is currently entitled Vindicating the Rights of Women Anew, where, we, where I want to look at what voluntary uh, motherhood is asking us to look at in terms of the, se- the sexual and social imbalances in sex. Because, the the sexual act is that's where these women understood um, kind of the key questions of equality to be, and feminists have always understood that, right? But um, but abortion really moves that to something else, and um, and you know doesn't look at kind of the um, the pre- the preconditions, um, which I think are are really important. Thanks so much for that. Uh, congrats on the book. I, I'm very much looking forward to reading it, and I know the listeners will as well. Um, Tracy, in our uh, final rounds, I, I want to explore the degree to which Stanton thought that the suffrage movement was linked to a broader uh, access to the legal system. And much of your work is focused on that question. You've noted that early in the suffrage movement, the women's vote was clearly tied with the issue of temperance. And you've also written uh, in Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the notion of a legal class of gender that Stanton was trying to create a collective consciousness among women. And you say that uh, Stanton's work to arouse women to their own subordination and to unite women as a group to reform the laws was the first step to women identifying collectively and thus providing the social foundation for legal transformation. Tell us more about how Stanton believed that that collective identification would lead to legal reform and what kind of legal reforms did she think it would lead to? Yes, and we see that really beginning at Seneca Falls all the way through, right? I mean, when we get when we think about women collectively and um, the personal is political and raising the collective conscious, we often think of the 1970s and Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, but really it was began with Stanton, and it was really one of her key sticking points from the very beginning. Women would say to her, "I have all the rights I want." 
And that became a title for one of her more famous speeches that when she would try to convince women or petition women, ask women to sign petitions for marital property rights or voting rights or child custody rights, they would say, I have all the rights I want. And so part of both the social movement as well as the legal movement for Stanton was to getting women to understand their commonalities, getting women and lawmakers to understand how gender was the basis upon which many of these norms and laws operated. So she started just in these grassroots movement with sharing stories, which is kind of a key feminist methodology of just sharing stories, sharing narrative, understanding women's experience, and realize that whether you were a working class tavern owner or an heiress with a million dollar farm, you both had restrictions based on gender. You could not have custody of your child or guardianship. You um, could have domestic chastisement by your husband. You could not own your marital property. And what was the similarity there? It was all that gender. And so focusing in on, I mean, there were certainly other issues of race and class, but it was it was new for society to start to understand that gender was a commonality and that gender was um, an inferiority, a, a disfavored class where penalties and lack of privilege attached to that gender. From that collectivity, then you get an ability to create a social and political movement for the vote where you get temperance women um, joining. But you also get what becomes the basis much, much later of our constitutional doctrine of equal protection. Uh, beginning when we finally had the U.S. Supreme Court equal protection cases in the 1970s, we start to see the court men on the court understand that gender is an immutable trait, an unchangeable factor upon which law and society um, operate for to create inferior and deny rights. And so understanding that there is that commonality for the court allows them to then look at laws and say that we are stereotyping women, we are basing it on gender instead of the realities, and that is something the court needs to scrutinize and question, and states must justify with valid, legitimate interest. And so, really, this is what, the, you know, Seneca Falls and, De and the Declaration of Sentiments articulates very specific 18 tangible holistic approaches, but it was part of this notion that women have to understand what is at the heart of all of this. Um, it is gender. And gender is a category that has been used to deny these rights and that the law needs to change. And so Stanton, she, she had this wonderful ability to flip back and forth between the philosophical, the systemic, and the very concrete. So as she's making these collective challenges to the system, she's also saying, and how do we do this? We get women on juries. We need women lawyers. We need women judges and women doctors. We need women buying their own stoves in their homes. <laughs> Don't ask your husband, buy the stove you want. So concrete solutions at the time we're looking at systemic. And I think that is one of her um, significant contributions and why she's really the leader um, over time of the, of, the, of the women's movement because she understood things on every level, legal, social, individualized. Um, and that has a, a much greater legacy than just simply the vote. Erica, you have argued that the effort by pro-choice feminists to locate a right to choose in the Equal Protection Clause is unpersuasive because the Equal Protection Clause governs only those regulations that discriminate between similarly situated people and men and uh, women are not similarly situated with regard to their uh, ability to get pregnant. D do you uh, agree with 
Tracy, that uh, Stanton's legacy supports a notion of collective uh, identity for gender that might have legal implications in striking down laws that discriminate against w women as a group? Or do you have a more uh, individual-based uh, uh, notion of equality based on the history? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I think what, Steve, uh, what Tracy said is uh, is right on. I mean, I um, you know one of the chapters in my book really hails the work of of um, Polly Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the in the early um, and mid nineteen seventies, and you know in um, you know throwing to the wind <laughs> um, those those um, laws that really you know just based um, uh, you know categorized women on the basis of sort of their reproductive potential and not as um, as individuals with their own capabilities that were, you know, equal equal to men. Um, you know, I think I think the concern I have today is um, is the real focus um, when it comes to equality on autonomy because I think when we focus on autonomy, which is um, some of what um, you know Ginsburg's work then tends toward, especially in her um, in her looking at. Uh, and you know, being the champion of, of abortion rights on the court, one of you know the, the biggest champion of abortion rights on the court, is really um, it, it doesn't you know make room for um, you know the, the asymmetries that that still exist with regard to reproduction and caregiving, and with regard to caregiving, not just um, you know that women take on, but that fathers take on as well. Um, and I think it's it's kind of no surprise that because of this kind of um, you know focus as abortion rights as the sine non of the movement that we've you know we still see that mothers are the ones you know women have made extraordinary gains in the workplace um, and in education. I mean we could you know spend a whole hour and and more um, you know documenting those uh, those gains. It's been it's incredible. Um, but that we what we don't see is is the rights of caregivers. And of course this is what you know American. <laughs> Law really needs to be looking at um, because of how um, how really kind of awful um, we treat um, caregivers, both in, in in getting time off to care, um, but just in all sorts of measures. So I think um, you know that's where I, I think um, I'd say that that when we when we focus on sort of you know equality as this kind of autonomy that we end up um, kind of promoting a cultural hostility toward pregnancy and motherhood and so we're derailing these necessary supports that that women pregnant women you know deserve um, and and that you know caregivers too deserve and so if there's one place where i think you know we could look back I guess, in addition to voluntary motherhood and the lessons that that would teach us, it would be in in um, in the work of uh, the cause for joint joint um, property ownership, which of course we don't have time to look at. Um, Reba Siegel, we've mentioned her before, the you know great legal scholar at at Yale, has a great um, article, "Home as Work," and I think you know there was this move um, for separate property ownership. Um, but that the early women's rights advocates really were looking for joint property ownership, and and by the nineteen you know seventies and eighties we finally have that where women um, you know inherit at, at the same rates as or the same way that their husbands should they predecease them inherit that they own you know half of their um, of of what they've earned together. But I think what joint property ownership can now show us is that you know women or men sometimes who remain in the home 
um, still don't have um, earnings, right? And so looking at how we can um, look together as a, as a women's movement um, for, for how we can start you know, remunerating women in some way and, and men who do that um, to give them more of an equal basis um, so that caregiving families who are doing a great deal of you know, sacrificing, especially financially, um, cannot be, you know, held, um, you know, financially, um, you know, be sacrificing more than, than those who are, you know, autonomous, unencumbered um, by, by care for children. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating discussion, which has revealed so much uh, relevant and unfamiliar history, which points in all sorts of surprising directions. <clears throat> and I guess this is my final question. Uh, the ERA was was first introduced by Alice Paul in 1923 after the 19th Amendment was ratified on the 75th anniversary of the original Seneca Falls Convention. Paul argued that we shall not be safe until the principle of equal rights is written into the framework of our government. And Justice Ginsburg, too, has argued that she believes that the ratification of the ERA is necessary to complete the promise of the 19th Amendment. Uh, uh, Tracy, we'll uh, begin with you. Uh, would Stanton have supported an, a version of the ERA? What, what, did, what did she say about it? And, and how does the ERA fit into the goals of the Seneca Falls uh, Convention as articulated in the Declaration of Sentiments? Well, I think the ERA is a shortcut to all of the things that were articulated in Seneca Falls because, again, we're, we saw such a broad-based a declaration of all of the various areas that needed to have equality that the ERA would have just been a one legal way to do all of those things um, by, by requiring inquiry of any time the law had a formal difference or a formal uh, denial of privilege based on gender. So um, the thing, so, so the, the, I think the ERA is important because it goes back to those first underpinnings in Seneca Falls, that it wasn't just about the vote. It was always about a complete restructuring of coverture. And the way you do that is by full constitutional permanent equality for all women that is an, as unchanging as we can make it in the law. Um, Alice Paul understood that. Alice Paul understood that once we passed the 19th Amendment, that was only one of 18 demands that was only a piece of the political system, not the entire legal social system that needed to change. And so that's why she proposed it. Um, you know, very early on, the first U.S. Supreme Court case, one of the earliest Supreme Court cases on the 19th Amendment, um, uh, Atkins versus D.C. Children's Hospital said this. It said the 19th Amendment was not just about the vote. It was about changing the whole system of coverture under which women would be treated differently. And in doing so, it struck down a, man, a maximum hours law for women workers. Um, that's quickly changed. And that's what happens after the 19th Amendment, which looked to be at least maybe some early interpretation that it would respect, it would, it would articulate this whole systemic change. Um, then we start to get the battle between labor advocates and Alice Paul's ERA group. Um, and because the ERA started to look like it was challenging some of the occupational workplace laws, the minimum wage laws, the minimum hour laws, maximum hour laws. And so the unions versus the professions were kind of battling. And women who were social feminists and promoting laws in the workplace and for working women found themselves at odds with women who were promoting the ERA but Alice Paul and her group of many lawyers, uh, lawyers on both sides, but a lot of lawyers and professional women, tracked 
did a study early on of over 500 state laws that on various things, back to Seneca Falls again, on custody, property, employment, that all needed to be changed, all created formal barriers to women, and all would be changed with an ERA. So the principles of the ERA have been there from the very beginning. Um, politics and different, uh, this labor versus business battle, um, different presidencies, you know, kind of stalled that. But I think the ERA is exactly what Seneca Falls was all about. Erica, last word to you. Do you think uh, that the ERA was what Seneca Falls was all about or not? And as uh, Virginia and other states are considering uh, ratifying the ERA, are there conservatives uh, who support the ERA or not? You know, I think that there there probably would be <laughs> if there um, was not this kind of close rhetorical um, kind of you know argument that uh, is is really um, within all uh, you know pro choice um, legal scholarship of of equality with abortion rights. Uh, I mean, I think this is where you see the Equal Rights Amendment um, fail. Uh, is because it, you know, right around the time of Roe, um, you know, feminist lawyers at that time were beginning to make these equality, you know, link equality and abortion. And so you lose a lot of, you know, the New Deal Catholics, you lose a lot of those, um, the you know, those who would end up calling themselves pro-life feminists who were, you know, great um, backers of the ERA, including Alice Paul herself, you know, um, who, who you know, make statements about, um, about, you know, being so pleased with all that had, Come, you know, for women, um, um, but then, you know, seeing seeing real problems with abortion. I think that I would um, really worry about the risks of strict and absolute equality. I mean, I think what we have now is a, you know, what what some scholars have called a de facto ERA with um, with you know intermediate scrutiny on the uh, in the equal protection um, clause. I think that the risks of strict and absolute equality. Um, basically are that we tend to see as normative the unencumbered traditionally male um, or masculine kind of lifestyle um, that are you know that that are free of uh, child care responsibilities um, or we look at the you know the autonomous male body that um, you know has sex and can walk away um, and that's not the case for women and so we lose some of those asymmetries that are um, inherent and um, and 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 then still present today culturally and socially um, that are important. So I think I would be um, now, um, though I probably would have supported the RA back then um, uh, in some ways. Um, I think that I would be um, tend to be with those who were um, the labor advocates who were who were arguing for specific bills for specific ills. Thank you so much. Erica Bekiaki and Tracy Thomas for a truly illuminating, surprising, and, and deeply rewarding discussion of uh, Seneca Falls on its anniversary. And as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment uh, coming up next year, we'll very much look forward to convening you both again and continuing this conversation. Erica, Tracy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Perry Wilson, and Michael Boyd. The homework of the week, two great articles from our scholars, both of which are linked on the Constitutional Resource page at constitutioncenter.org. Please read 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Notion of the Legal Class of Gender by Tracy Thomas. That is in the University of Akron Legal Studies research paper series. And please also read Erica Bakiaki's Embodied Equality, Debunking Equality Protection Arguments for Abortion in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Please also rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And remember, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and dedication for lifelong learning of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.